somebody, you know, friend of a friend reached out to me with a legal question. I'm like, I'm really not qualified to answer this. But I am qualified to put it into ChatGPT. <laughs> if they were one company, they could have avoided this whole mess. <laughs> um, and I spoke to Emil Michael, the chief business officer at Uber, and he was like, yeah, I tried to get us to acquire them, to merge, because it just didn't make sense. But Travis said, we got to kill them. And Lyft was like, we hate Uber. So businesses just are irrational at the end of the day. And, and the fact that they're funded by, by VCs who, and they all have take over the world visions, it's challenging for people to be in a spot of like, hey, you, you play this niche or hey, you collaborate with this competitor. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Let's kick it off with a GPT 3.5 turbo fine-tuning update. Let's do it. It's been uh, just a couple of weeks since the last episode where we covered it in the immediate wake of the release. And, you know, it is interesting. I had had, as I mentioned then, you know, explore fine-tuning Llama 2 on my to-do list for a little while and then kind of said, yeah, I'd probably scratch that off and do the 3.5 fine-tuning instead. And they do make it super easy. You know, it, it, I probably at this point in time wouldn't have still gotten around to doing the Llama 2 fine-tuning, not because it wouldn't have been interesting, but, you know, just, okay, even if you do it and you get it to work, then you still have the inference problems that we talked about, you know, where it's like, okay, how am I going to host this? And what kind of load can it handle? And do I auto scale up or down? Who's got a good solution for that? There are solutions, you know, coming, but they're not mature. In contrast, OpenAI just makes it so easy. If anybody, you know, if you've used the previous version of their fine tuning, it's very similar. This time around, they have both the prompt and completion format, which is the old format. And now the primary one is the chat format. So you get to set up your kind of system message, you know, who you want the AI to be, what its job is. And then from there, it's kind of a back and forth between user and assistant. You can set up a couple of examples of the task that you want it to do. And next thing you know, you're, you're kind of off to the races fine tuning. What has been really interesting, though, is using GPT-4 to create the data set for 3.5 fine tuning. And we kind of came to that in a couple steps, but again, I'm doing all this for Waymark, right? So my goal here is we already have a product in market. It works really, you know, relative to anything in the, you know, not too distant past, like amazingly well, you can just tell it what kind of video you want. It will make you that video. Next thing you know, you're watching that video complete with a script, images from your business loaded in, you know, to complement the, the narrative and even a voiceover layered on top of that. And that all happens, you know, in kind of 20 to 30 seconds. So pretty cool, but obviously, you know, there is still room for improvement in, in all of these things. Our scripts are often not quite as good as we'd like them to be. And sometimes we see like wonky images chosen where we're like, oh God, you know, we'd really rather <laughs> wish we had pick something else. And sometimes the voiceover, you know, it's usually well-written and like apt, but sometimes it doesn't quite sync up just right with the, you know, the timing of the scenes. And so, you know, there's, obvious opportunity for improvement. So it's like, okay, we got a new model. And per what OpenAI said, 
As soon as you fine tune it, it's available immediately for use. And you have the same rate limits as you have with the normal models, which are high, meaning I don't have to worry about scalability at all. I don't have to worry about any hosting complexity, assuming that's true. Spoiler, it seems to be pretty true. So I'm like, yeah, now if I can just make the model better, I don't even have to deal with any of these other problems. I can just hand something right over to our development team that could be a drop-in replacement. So what you had before, just you know, switch this model out for this new model ID. Everything gets better, and that could happen with almost no work from the rest of the development team. So that's like a huge attractor to, okay, let's do this now instead of kind of having you know, Llama 2 on our to-do list and you know, maybe getting to it when we have time. So first, first round we did was you know, kind of the same thing we'd done before. We just took inputs and outputs. Here's the setup, you know, and, and our setup is typically, here's kind of the structure of the video. Here's a profile of the business that also can start to include what are the images available. We represent those as text, just as image captions, starting to use some aesthetic evaluation as well. So we can kind of bracket like these are the, you know, super high quality images. These are the you know medium ones. These are the low ones. Sometimes all they have are low ones. So, you know, we got to use what we can. And then here's the user's runtime instruction. You know, the, typically these are small businesses, so they might be saying, I'm opening a new location, or I've got a sale this weekend, or I'm hiring for a particular role, or whatever, right? They've got all sorts of different things. And it's a long tail, you know, as you might imagine with all these kind of different idiosyncratic local businesses. So we tried the prompts and completions, and yeah, not that great. Not that great. Why is it not that great? Um, just not as good. Didn't seem quite as good. I don't know. You know, it just, it wasn't quite there. So I took a walk and I was thinking, all right, GPT-4, by the way, does this task pretty well with a couple of examples. Do we need just more data? Well, we already have like a decent amount of data. I mean, I don't know. It's, our data set is reasonably small. Like it's, you know, we've used anywhere between a hundred and a thousand scripts for most of our fine tuning process. So, so that's not like big data, but that's always kind of worked, you know, for the last however many rounds. So GPT-4 can do it, you know, it seems like, okay, we could get more data from GPT-4, but is, you know, is that really going to move the needle all that much? And then what I landed on, you know, just to get away from the keyboard a little bit and really think, okay, what, what would really help here? And what have I seen in the research that people seem to do that was pretty effective? Came up with the idea of let's train 3.5, not just on GPT-4's output, but actually it's reasoning that leads up to that output. So we moved from, instead of just asking GPT-4 to do the task, which by the way, it can do well just straight away, you know, with a couple of examples anyway, it can just do it. We then moved to asking it to first analyze the task, explain its reasoning, you know, classic kind of step-by-step -step chain of thought. And we're still in the process of refining that, you know, exactly how do we want it to reason about this? Uh, but immediately, even though GPT-4 didn't necessarily obviously do any better with the chain of thought. So it, in, in some sense, it kind of seems like a waste. We were able to generate a still modest sized synthetic data set using the chain of thought approach on GPT-4, then take that output, go over to 3.5 and run the fine tuning. Now where the data set is not just inputs and result, but inputs and then analysis, reasoning, breakdown, coming up with a strategy, and then the result. And that works a lot better. And I think this really suggests that this loop is going to become super common.
where basically if you have, and we can talk about the cost and time savings on this too, because both are substantial. But if you have a prompt that works with GPT-4, even if it's kind of a lot of tokens, you know, in our, in our case, we're starting to get close to maxing out the 8,000 token context window with just two examples. We got boilerplate instructions that adds up to like a thousand words by the time you say everything you want to say. Then a couple of examples, and those are each, you know, let's say 2,000 tokens, and we leave 3,000 tokens at the end. And, you know, you're starting to max that out. That is cost-wise, like 30, 35 cents per. So it starts to be a little bit prohibitive for production. And it's also slow. I mean, typically over a minute, sometimes over 90 seconds, typically in that kind of 60 to 90 second uh, range. So you're waiting a long time and you're spending a lot on it, but the result is good. If you are in that position, what this really suggests is that you can add that chain of thought element to the GPT-4 approach, even if it's not obviously adding anything in terms of GPT-4's quality of output. And then when you go to fine tune on the 3.5, notably, we're also cutting out those examples. So our token count drops from the, you know, up to 8,000. The limit on the 3.5 one is 4,000, although they do have 16,000 coming, but the limit is 4,000 there. So we cut the two examples. Now we just have the instructions, the inputs and the outputs are, you know, just the one case that we're actually concerned with. And it basically learns to do that reasoning, maybe not quite as well as GPT-4, but like very well. I think this implies a lot about kind of where things are going. We've already seen a huge trend toward using synthetic data in training for all sorts of reasons. Our last episode with Zico, Coulter, and and um, Andy Zavi talked about that, you know, a decent amount where it's like, you know, the whole problem of jailbreaks stems from the fact that the model is trained on like all this crazy content that includes all sorts of toxic and hateful and, you know, anything you might imagine. And so we kind of have to try to paper over that. What he suggested was, well, why don't we start trying to train our models without all that shit, or at least with a lot less of it, you know, then maybe that problem would be much less severe. We wouldn't have to paper over as much stuff if we could just not have the models be exposed to all that, you know, internet sludge in the first place. People are starting to work on that. And this just goes to show how easy that is starting to be, at least for narrow use cases. Now, I'm still building, of course, on like all the pre-training and all the, you know, there's we're very much on the shoulders of giants here, but I can take GPT-4 with just two good examples, have it generate a hundred examples with chain of thought. Now I can go move that to a 3.5, get it to work with, you know, half or fewer of the tokens. The cost of that is like also like a third. So you're, you know, in the ball, probably not quite, but like in the ballpark of a 90% cost reduction. Latency is also much better. It's like often under 10 seconds. Sometimes it seems like it kind of varies by just probably the load on OpenAI systems, but under 10 seconds, often up to into the 20s, sometimes if it's more slow. But, you know, basically the, the slowest ones with 3.5 are about at the same level as the very fastest ones from the GPT-4. And this whole thing can be run pretty quickly. Another really interesting data point on this, just from our experience of over the last you know couple of weeks of, of really getting into it, 
is we have these data sets that we've created of like what good videos look like. But here we didn't have the chain of thought because we never needed it, right? We never, there was never any time or place where anybody was like, I'm going to sit down and write three paragraphs about how I'm making this video. Just, you know, just do it, right? So that all just is internal to the human's heads who made those videos. So we didn't have that, but I wanted to run the fine tuning on it. So I had to have GPT-4 create it. Now I could have taken the existing videos and generated the chain of thought for that. And we might still do that, but we found that the just asking GPT-4 to just do the task with chain of thought straight away was to at least, you know, first approximation, roughly as good as the human work that we were doing anyway. So instead of like kind of, you know, replumbing everything and generating just the chain of thought, I just kind of said, well, hey, GPT-4, just do the chain of thought and do the video, just do it all. And then we'll just train on that. And I don't think that's probably where we'll end up uh, because we do have a data set that we probably trust a little bit more. And I think we can refine still further from there. But if you don't have a data set, you know, if you just have a prompt that works, then, you know, this, this cycle of use that prompt to generate a data set with that kind of how you're going about it, not just what you do, but how you're kind of planning and thinking about it. And then the, what you do, port that over to 3.5, run the fine tune. The fine tune typically takes minutes. Uh, the model is indeed available to use typically in seconds after I've seen a few errors where, you know, the model gets done and I go ping it immediately. And it's like, sorry, not ready yet. Typically the next time I ping it, it is ready and it's ready to go. And then you've got, you know, just the, you know, the full scalability and responsiveness of, of 3.5. It is, I think going to be a hit product <laughs> for them if it's not already. And definitely suggests, you know, that just there's so much opportunity. Now, now that we have language models that are good enough to generate a lot of this data, training on synthetic data is just going to be, you know, such a, an obvious win in so many cases. Oh, you know, data provenance issues too is another one. You know, OpenAI probably is not going to get away with saying, well, we just use synthetic data from GPT-4 because then people are going to be, well, how'd you train GPT-4? So there's kind of that, you know, regress that they may have to defend. But in another context, at Athena, which we've talked about many times, I, you know, there's kind of this question of like, well, geez, what are we going to train on? You know, forget about what OpenAI is going to train on. They, you know, we're using the API. They're not going to train on our data. But what if we want to train on our data? What if we have clients who have somewhat sensitive data? You know, what if their executive assistants are using somewhat sensitive data or just personal information in prompts? And now that becomes part of our data set. Would we train on that? Hey. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs, and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. 
Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash cognitive. That's netsuite.com slash cognitive to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash cognitive. Omniki uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in Omniki so much that I invested in it and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. How do we you know, probably want to take some steps to like make sure that that information is kind of cleaned up or like, you know, sort of anonymized somehow, you know, they, sometimes they use the term de-identified, but are we really experts in that? No. And, you know, we don't really want to get caught <laughs> making a huge uh, mistake. So based on this experience, I'm kind of like, maybe we can just, you know, make the kind of policy now that like, we just won't train on client data. And instead, we'll just train on synthetic data that, you know, is maybe looks like client data or um, inspired by client data, but never actually having to use the client data in the training process at all. So I think those are my kind of big updates. Let me know uh, what questions you have. But bottom line, 3.5 fine tuning is a great product experience. It's really easy to use. It runs quickly. The models are very scalable once you have them. Biggest insight from the process is training on chain of thought can get you really good performance, much better than you get just by training on the work itself. And the synthetic data approach, you know, generating from GPT-4 or whatever, and then feeding that into the smaller model really works. Give a shout out too to former uh, guest and friend of the show, uh, Human Loop, because I'm using that for this process. And I think they've done a really nice job of anticipating what this loop is going to look like and building the tools to make it pretty easy to do. Um, at the, you know, as of two weeks ago, I was kind of thinking, all right, how am I going to code myself a loop here to do this? And then I got back into human loop, which I have, can, I've been using throughout, but I hadn't used every last feature and until recently. And as I looked into that more, I was like, yeah, these, these guys have definitely done a really nice job of anticipating what kinds of loops people are going to want to create. You can go in there, you know, track every little aspect of everything you've done, make corrections. You know, if you have something, it's like, okay, this was wrong. I want to fix that or kind of modify how it's, you know, reasoning through this and then use that in the next batch of training. You can kind of, you know, have what the model did, your correction on top of it. And then, you know, just by layering on those little corrections, again, just improve performance so much. So I think all these apps are going to start to get pretty good. I would say ours at Waymark is already among the best in terms of just reliably doing a pretty good job, you know, and giving you something that you would have a decent chance of actually wanting to use. A lot of room for improvement. And I think we will see a lot of that improvement come online over the next few weeks to a month as we, you know, do another kind of 10 iterations probably on the fine-tuned model that powers it. And uh, it's exciting, you know, that for, this is a great instance too of just kind of, you know, what do we, what do we want to accelerate and what do we want to slow down? I'm all for accelerating this kind of stuff, making 3.5 work well and scalably 
and you know responsively for users and just make all these apps in our daily lives so much better that is to be accelerated in my mind and notably i don't think we really even necessarily need gpt5 to do our task if you want to do medical work you want to get into science you know you want to think about advanced cybersecurity type stuff you know gpt4 can you can hit its limits but for the kind of script writing we're doing i'm not even sure you know that there's that much more improvement left beyond what we can get from kind of a gpt4 based system so very cool definitely fun learning experience and uh that's what i've got to report there's a few questions that stem from that but just to close the last loop so in your dream world what we would accelerate is the the applications that we've just been talking about but what we would slow down is sort of new versions you know gpt5 basically I guess, how, how would you delineate what's your policy for what you want to slow down or you know the leading model developers have i think put a pretty good position out which is that they think systems more powerful than GPT-4 deserve special scrutiny. And they've committed to you know, a few different ways of doing that, including having third-party independent auditors or red teams look at them and try to assess the risks. And the sort of talk of licensing also, I think is often willfully or not, but often it seems sometimes willfully kind of mischaracterized as like, oh, you're not going to be able to do anything on your laptop anymore because Big Brother's going to be watching you. And they have been very clear that they want that to apply to systems more powerful than GPT-4 as of now. And it's presumably a sliding scale. You know, if we get to GPT-5 and that's safe, then, you know, maybe it's maybe that gets edited to be, you know, systems more powerful than GPT-5. But I do think, you know, some of this stuff with the like the synthetic data, I just think we need a little bit of time to develop some better techniques before just more raw scaling. And it's possible that within some of the leading labs, they have developed some of these techniques and we just don't necessarily know about them yet. But, you know, cleaning the data is just one obvious thing that we can now do pretty well and pretty efficiently with the language models that we do have to try to create data sets that are just not so problematic in the first place. The biggest risk that people tend to identify is pandemic, you know, that, that a language model and, you know, Anthropic had a Senate testimony thing about this. They've worked with some, some leading biosecurity people and they've kind of said, yeah, it's not quite there yet, but you know, and they don't even like to talk about the details of the work. Um, but they have some, you know, extremely credible people that, you know, like MIT professors, um, involved with it. And they basically say, you know, there's a number of things that you would need to do to create a new pathogen and a language model can't do all those things, but it can do some of them and it can like kind of help you figure out what those steps might be. You know, the problem right now is like that information is in there because it's just been trained on everything. And, you know, you try to RLHF it to not happen, but then you got, things like the universal jailbreak that show if it's, especially if it's open sourced, but even if not, but definitely if it's open sourced, like you can get that out and you can have kind of a cascade of things where somebody might just be like a free speech absolutist and say, well, I'm going to, you know, figure out a way to take off this kind of refusal behavior and somebody else, you know, comes along. It's not just like one person's going to do all these steps, but you do see this kind of proliferation loss of control. And then, 
you know, if the model is capable enough and the information is in there, if you are open sourcing something, it's out there. So I think up to around GPT-4, we're going to be, you know, reasonably confident it's not going to like design a pathogen. GPT-5 very well might have, you know, pathogen designing capabilities. And I would much rather we get to a place where we like know what the data set is and know that it doesn't have exposure to certain kinds of super sensitive stuff before we build it. And I think it is increasingly, you can kind of see a path to that. Are we going to take that path or, or not? It does seem like, you know, OpenAI seems to want to. Anthropic is definitely all about that. Google, I don't, deep mind, I don't really know. But they've been leaders in science, you know, with things like AlphaFold and, and many others. So clearly they have awareness. Meta's, you know, probably the, the biggest wild card there right now where, you know, the scuttlebutt is that they are training a GPT-4, going to open source it, you know, don't care what anybody thinks. You know, we'll, we'll learn a lot if they do that about did they take any extra precautions? You know, did they, did they filter the data set? You know, if they are going to go down that path, I would love to see some additional foundational thought being put into this. That's not just like, hey, maybe we can paper it over. But maybe, in fact, we can find a way to not have this be part of the model's capabilities in the first place. And nobody really, you know, that would not compromise anybody's utility really at all. You know, I mean, there's maybe a few biologists that would get a little less value from something that didn't have access to certain information. And maybe you could have, you know, if we're operating in a, a world where there are going to be rules, maybe there could be rules around, you know, bio aware language models versus non-bio-aware language models and, you know, maybe similar for some other domains too. But we just need some time to figure that stuff out. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's what I would like to see us uh, take a breath on. Meanwhile, we can have all the cool apps we want uh, with the, you know, and increasingly affordably and responsively with the 3.5 fine-tuning loop. Well said. Another thing that came up for me when you were talking is this idea the sort of question going around now of like, where is it going to be sort of co-pilot for X versus where is it going to be just like doing X directly, replacing X, taking the human out of the loop? Obviously in regulated industries, you know, you're going to need the human in the loop, but what are the, you know, outside of that, where are the spaces where it's co-pilot for X versus, you know, X directly and kind of on what, what time frame? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I currently divide the modes of using AI into two, and I think there's kind of a third one coming. One being co-pilot, and I describe that as you as the human are the primary agent going about your business, and the AI is there to assist you, answer your questions, you know, do the menial tasks. Increasingly can do like pretty significant chunks of work. I've been coding quite a bit over the last couple of weeks as I've been getting into this whole fine-tuning loop. And I basically don't write any code by hand anymore, almost at all. I pretty much always take some existing code, whether that's something that I previously wrote or something from some documentation somewhere, go to GPT-4 with it and say, here's what I have and here's what I want. And I just try to force myself and it, you know, it helps force you to do it or because it rewards it. But you really just try to think through, like, what is it that I really want? But that's still co-pilot mode because I'm basically doing that, like, one bit of code at a time. You know, it's, it's able to be more and more helpful, but I'm still going to it with, like, 
okay, next I want to do this class and I want to base it on this one and I want to borrow the caching pattern from over here. And you know, your job is to come up with a new thing. It's remarkably good at that. I would say, you know, last time we talked about coding, I said, you know, that's where I use it the most, but just over these last couple of weeks, getting into it more intensively again for a sprint, like I would say it is safely a multiple X speed up on my ability to get projects done. Just much less likely to get stuck on something I don't know, much less likely to have some really stupid like typo or whatever, you know, kind of unobvious mistake, you know, confuse me for a while. Cause the AI just doesn't make those kinds of mistakes very much. Uh, not to maybe say never, but you know, not very much. So I'd say it's a multiple speed up, but we're still in co-pilot mode there. The other mode that I talk about is delegation mode. I borrow that word from Athena because their whole you know, thing is about delegation and the transformative power of delegation. And in delegation, I kind of think like the core difference is you're trying to get the AI to do the work at a level where you have enough trust in it that you at least don't have to review every single thing it does. You're probably still gonna have some sort or form of review in most cases. Whereas I'm coding in copilot mode, I'm looking at all, you know, I'm watching it write the code. I then typically go run the code immediately. And you know, I may find an issue, I may come back with a bug. If I do come back with a bug, I literally just copy and paste the bug you know, message right in and say, you know, hey, I hit this issue. Often it can help. Um, often it helps, you know, pretty much immediately, not always, but, you know, it takes, again, just tons and tons of time out, but I'm driving. Whereas in delegation mode, it's like, okay, you know, I've used this example a lot of times, like good news, bad news, good news. We got a thousand applications for this new job. Bad news. Nobody has time to read them all. Good news. <laughs> I can create a prompt that can, you know, that I can validate on probably the first 10 that takes me about the time it might take me to read through 50 to 100. And then I can achieve like 90% time savings, not necessarily to definitely not to like make the hiring decisions, but at least to like separate the bottom half from the top half, or maybe the top 20% from the bottom 80%. And the, the real key there where I would say you're getting into delegation mode is where you're confident enough that that bottom 80% or whatever is something that you can, in fact, be comfortable letting go of without actually reading those. You know, then you might just look at the top 20% or the top 10 or whatever. So you're still going to have typically a human in the loop if it's anything important, but you can save a ton of time. And again, my, my key distinction for delegation mode is you aren't planning to review all the work. So you want to, you need to get to some standard, you know, and satisfy yourself that the work is good enough that you don't have to review every bit of work. Rachel Woods has a, a good uh, three tier hierarchy for this. She's got these kind of tiers where it's like work that just needs to get done, good enough work, and then like great work. And she's like, you know, work that just needs to get done. That's the first thing you want to delegate to the AI and put into some sort of automation work. That's like just good enough, you know, could be borderline, but often, you know, you can get there. Great work, you know, insights, strategy, 
you're not going to delegate that stuff. So at most, you're going to be in kind of co-pilot mode. Maybe you get you know some ideas from AI along the way, but you're going to be the one that's judging whether those ideas are good or not. What is the standard? Do we need, and we've talked about this in the past too, right? Do we need breakthrough insights or do we need like reliable, consistent execution of a given standard or a given rubric or a given, you know, protocol against some like fairly predictable data? Those are the two modes as they exist today. And what's coming soon, perhaps, is the rise of agents, which kind of sit in between, you know, that that's like, I think of those as kind of the bridge between the co-pilot mode where you're driving and the delegation mode. And the dream is like, you can delegate something in real time and it will be reliable enough to do it for you without you having to supervise every step. But you also like, hopefully don't have to spend a ton of time, you know, creating scaffolding or creating a rubric or, you know, validating in the way that you do pretty much have to do today. If you want to get something set up for a delegation style automation. So all that was in your question of like, okay, what is, you know, co-pilot for what versus doing what, you know, it's an incomplete account too, because when I think about myself, you know, I'm like, it's also a huge question of who the user is. I've had instances in the last couple of weeks where somebody, you know, friend of a friend reached out to me with a legal question and I'm like, I'm really not qualified to answer this, but I am qualified to put it into chat GPT. <laughs> so it's like an, it's a weird in between case in that one, right? Where I'm like, I never called the lawyer that I might have otherwise called because I have a pretty good sense for what GPT-4 can and can't do. It's pretty sure it would be like solid on this one. And, you know, I got good enough information that for my purposes, like I was able to move forward and kind of basically tell this friend of a friend that I think they need a new lawyer. Uh, but the, what is that? Is that, that's not co-pilot for lawyers. You know, that's co-pilot for me, but it is perhaps replacing a call to a lawyer or, you know, the more maybe optimistic take and possibly true take, I don't know, is maybe I just never would have done that. And I would have just told this person like, sorry, I can't help you at all. And they would have had to go, you know, figure something else out. So maybe it's just like, purely expanding the pie and no, you know, no lawyers were harmed in the, in this use of chat GPT, but definitely there are plenty of, of situations. Contra I've done a, a number of contract reviews recently too. just get, you know, whatever, some independent, somebody sends me an independent contractor agreement. Hey, Claude, GPT-4, does this look standard? Anything of concern here? If both of them say there's nothing of concern, I'll sign it. You know, if, if, uh, cause I've, you know, I've seen enough to know that they'll flag stuff. Uh, and usually they flag something, you know, they'll, they'll flag something anyway. So the things that they flag, if they're reasonably consistent and they seem fairly normal and they, you know, they don't, uh, they don't seem to be of particular concern. Like, again, I don't need to probably in the past would have read it myself. So again, it's, it's more co-pilot for me than co-pilot for a lawyer, but it does sort of substitute I don't know, man. It's everything, everywhere, all at once. To deny displacement at this point is definitely head in the sand. You know, there are, it is clear that there are calls to experts, lawyers, doctors, whatever, that would be made and would incur billable 
time that are just not made because you can get what you need directly from the AI. That's not enough yet to say, you know, that those jobs don't need to exist, you know, certainly far from it for some of the most, you know, sensitive jobs that are out there. But to say that there's like not displacement happening is, I think, just denial, really, at this point. It's interesting. I just had Sam uh, Lesson and uh, Seth Rosenberg on the VC podcast, though we'll publish it here actually, too. They were debating the whole time around whether value will go to all incumbents or some startups, et cetera. But at the end, they both agreed that, you know, costs going down is going to radically increase demand. Um, and thus they were very bullish on unemployment. And I wanted to bring up the uh, the tweet that you had around, you know, tell that to the farmers, et cetera, like, you know, employment for, for who. And um, yeah, there's a big question around like, to what degree will the displacement happen and on on what timeline? And the new jobs that are enabled, who will be able to to do that? And will enough people be able to transition um, into whatever these new jobs are demanding? And I think these are all, yeah, these are all these are all big questions. Yeah, it seems to me like we are definitely headed for some significant disruption. How concrete would you be willing to get in sort of a prediction? I want to be thoughtful about what I would want to get concrete about. You know, one data point where I was a little hesitant to get concrete a year ago, this was in the GPT-4 red teaming time. I was like, holy shit, you know, this is going to be huge. And because I, it was just immediately so useful to me, you know, and ran for this stuff like medical too. I mean, just you name it, right? I'm just using it for everything. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be huge. And I was talking to a friend about it and they're like, well, you know, how big do you think the market size is going to be? And I was like, well, I don't know, that's tough because first of all, they just keep dropping the prices, <laughs> you know? So like when you keep, when you see 98% price cuts or whatever from one year to the next, like that is kind of tough, you know, from a market growth standpoint. So I kind of hedged on that. I was like, I don't, I don't know that I would bet on the, you know, the revenue directly attributable to LLMs as like. The, the metric that I would want to bet on. And so we ended up like not making a bet at that time. Now I would say safely that OpenAI's revenue growth has significantly exceeded my expectations, even having seen GPT-4 at that time. I think they did something like high 20s million revenue last year in, in all of 2022. And now they're at a billion annual run rate, which is to say, you know, 80, low 80s million per month. So they've scaled from end of last year, you know, maybe whatever they could have been at four or five, they're at like 15 to 20 X in nine months. And think too about how many tokens that is. $80 million a month when the retail price of GPT 3.5 turbo tokens is $2 per million. So obviously they're serving different models that, you know, that's the lower price, although they're also serving a lot of free tokens too. So, you know, maybe just to take a totally naive, you know, okay, 80 million $2 per million, 40 million times a million, 40, trillion 
tokens per month they're generating. 5,000 tokens per month for every human on Earth is kind of roughly what that backs out to. That's definitely grown faster than I thought it would. And I was pretty sure it was going to grow, you know, quite a bit. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can, we, we should think a little bit more and do this on another episode. And, and I, I will definitely be happy to put some guesses on. But the metrics are tricky. One of the things that people are speculating they might uh, deliver at their upcoming developer conference is another price drop. Uh, so they're not maximizing in you know conventional sense, I don't think. And it is a little tough to kind of figure out exactly you know what you would want to predict as a result. As as host, you know, I have to make a, a prediction, so I'll I'll punt on it, but I won't uh, I won't dodge it indefinitely. You know, synthetic data based on client data, inspired by client data, as opposed to client data itself, does that solve the problem for the client? You think is that something that people would be would be happy with, or is that kind of a loophole or workaround? I think it probably is contextual. You know, nobody wants their phone number coming out of a you know of a language model, right? So that type of kind of very explicit, you know, this is obviously your data and it shouldn't be here, is pretty easy to avoid. So yeah, you can just like change up all the phone numbers, you know, change up the names, you know, the old dragnet uh, names have been changed to protect the innocent. I think you can definitely go clean up that kind of stuff pretty simply. Conceptual stuff is a little bit trickier. There, has, I need to do a little bit more reading on this, but there has been some recent research that showed that it only took like very few examples, maybe as few as just one example in some cases for a model to essentially memorize a certain text. What exactly, you know, does memorization imply understanding or whatever? But if you had conceptual IP and it's not the kind of thing that's like so obvious as a phone number or, you know, an address or whatever, and in, or a price, you know, of an item or, you know, your code, right? I put code into ChatGPT all the time, right? So I don't really want my SQL schema to be in the training set, but they could fudge that around pretty easily, I would think. But more conceptual stuff that's like, how is this done? You know, it, do we have kind of a, a certain secret sauce that kind of constitutes a sort of intangible IP? And might that still get through some of these things into a model's conceptual understanding such that, you know, other people interested in the field could kind of indirectly get access to your, you know, hard won specialized knowledge. Tough. I, you know, it's, it's really hard to say. I, it seems unlikely that that would happen, but I certainly wouldn't say you have nothing to worry about. You know, if you have, um, trying to think of a good example of this, right? There's, just process chemistry. I studied chemistry in college and there's like the reactions, you know, and there's like the molecule and, you know, you could sort of say, okay, if we don't tell them what the molecule is, you know, they don't know what it is. They'll, they can't reproduce the drug. There's also a lot of stuff that is just kind of known and, and developed or, or along the way of, well, how exactly is this done? How fast do you heat it up? You know, at what temp, you know, how gradually do you add this other thing in and a lot of this stuff is just kind of learned by trial and error and is kind of a, 
you might look at somebody's notebook and say, well, there's not really anything like super special here. You know, they're just kind of recording how they did a certain thing. And it seems, you know, fairly innocuous in and of itself. But if you're like a big pharma company and you've got like all this kind of process, you know, knowledge that's kind of represented in all these notebooks, I wouldn't just hand that over to OpenAI for training. That's for sure. You know, I might, I'd be very interested in what that might do for me, you know, to, to train my own model on, on that kind of specialized knowledge. But I would be reluctant to, you know, have anybody else get their hands on it. Because it, it, in some ways it becomes more valuable perhaps in the language model than it is even in the notebooks. You know, these notebooks are not, uh, from what I've seen, you know, there's not a lot of time spent one scientist reading another scientist's notebook. Uh, but if the AI could read all the notebooks, then it might just have some insights that, you know, are not obvious to perhaps anyone. So, yeah, I think a lot more needs to be kind of figured out there. So far, it's been pretty superficial, but more conceptual stuff is harder to say. And so that's why OpenAI, you know, has kind of had this very consistent message recently of like, we don't train on your data, we don't train on your data, we don't train on your data. And I, and I don't, even the synthetic thing, you know, I'm not sure would get around it for some of this fuzzier kind of delocalized information. Let's, uh, let's get into some AI bundle talk. Yeah. So, okay. This is um, possibly a good idea, possibly not a good idea, but I wanted to bounce it off of you. And for context, it stems from the fact that as a customer of AI services all over the place, I am constantly running into a just like an increasing number of services that I think are like awesome and you know potentially worth paying for and then also like an even longer tail of services that are potentially you know worth paying for or you know kind of something I want to pay for once maybe but not something I'm like going to be a power user of this is coming to the fore very much at Athena again you know, a thousand plus executive assistants serving a thousand executive clients all over the place, a lot of different needs, you know, a lot of different contexts, a lot of different tools that would be helpful in that circumstance. So one of the skills that I'm trying to teach folks is product scouting. Just how do you go out there and figure out, is this good? Is it bad? Does it add anything to, you know, kind of base GPT-4? What's worth paying for? And it's tough. And it's also tough on the app developer side. So as you know, putting on my Waymark hat, then I'm like, man, we get a lot of traffic from a lot of people who don't really, they're not like power users of our app, right? We help small businesses make marketing videos. We sell to big companies that do a lot of that. So like cable companies, TV companies, you know, Spectrum, Fox, Gray TV, etc. They have dedicated sales teams that go out and sell video advertising all the time. And so they need a lot of video creative. And so they're a natural kind of long-term customer for us. But then the small businesses themselves, even today, are not like making a video every day. You know, no matter how easy we make it, they're just not going to make that many videos. And, you know, we offer just like so many retail SaaS businesses, we offer a monthly subscription, cancel anytime. And it's kind of putting us in this weird position where, we want to show the product off. We want to give that demo without requiring payment, but we figure we're paying about 15 cents for all the different AI services that we're using to serve one random new user 
whether or not they pay us anything. And then our lowest price point, well, we varied it over time, but you know, you, you see a range of lowest price points out there, but typically they're like at least 10 bucks, often 20, often 30, sometimes more. And so you're kind of in this weird spot where you're like, okay, I need to get one person to sign up for a $30 a month subscription to cover 200 people just trying the product. And then I can kind of break even on that. But it doesn't really feel like super fair or awesome for anyone. And I think Waymark has really good customer retention metrics at those like high-end enterprise customers. But like many AI apps, we see a lot of people try the product. A lot of people just bounce, obviously, you know, they're not ready to pay the 30 bucks or whatever. Then a lot of other people do pay the 30 bucks because they're like, I love that. I want that. And we don't want them to download the, the thing that they created until they pay us something. But then a lot of those people will just quickly cancel because they're like, I only wanted the one thing. I don't want another subscription. You know, this sucks. So I got pain on both sides, right? As a customer of AI products, I like have a proliferating set of things that I find value in. And, you know, the bill is adding up and it's ridiculous, you know, to try to imagine buying all the things that I might want to use just to, you know, go down my, my power rankings a little bit. ChatGPT, 20 bucks a month retail, 60 bucks a month if we're going to buy the recently announced enterprise edition. 60 bucks a month is the highest AI platform price that I've seen so far. Windows Copilot, 30 bucks a month. Google Duet, 30 bucks a month. Perplexity Pro, 20 bucks a month. Claude Pro, 20 bucks a month. GitHub Copilot, $10 if you buy it for yourself, $19 if your company buys it for you. Replit Ghostwriter, $10 uh, per seat. And those are just like the literal, you know, the top, top tier of things that I use repeatedly every week. So you add those up and even leaving the enterprise price off of, of ChatGPT, you know, and, and just figuring I'm only going to buy one of uh, Windows or Google Suite, I'm still at 110 bucks, you know, for kind of the other four of seven of those things or whatever. That's adding up to quite a bit. And Waymark notably doesn't see a cent. So this got me thinking, is there an opportunity here to create some sort of cable bundle-like bundle? And who exactly should sell it and how it should be governed? I mean, there's, I think, a lot of little nuances to how this would work inevitably, right? Um, certainly cable bundles are not without their drama, as we've seen lately, too. But if I'm paying 100 bucks a month, it seems like what I really want and maybe could get would be like a little bit of all the different AI apps that are out there. So instead of having to kind of decide, like, do I want to subsidize the next 200 free users for this given app by like paying the 30 bucks, even if I don't really intend to be a power user of this app, maybe there could be some other way where if I'm subscribed to a bundle, I can kind of get access to all these things, at least in some limited fashion, right? So I could kind of pop around the web and like make a Waymark video and then maybe make like a gamma slide deck and maybe make another one in a couple of weeks, but I'm never going to become a power user and I don't, I don't want the $30 per month level. How could that look? And it does seem like there's something there that 
really could make sense. You know, if, if I'm a customer and you said, hey, your bill is adding up for a hundred bucks, we'll curate for you, you know, a hundred going on a thousand apps and you'll get at least baseline access to all of them. Uh, presumably, you know, there would be higher tiers for many of these things beyond kind of what would be included in the bundle. But those would be for like the real power users, you know, that that are not going to just make one off things here or there. I think that would be very compelling to me as an individual customer. And then I think about it from the Waymark side and I'm like, I don't know what our share of that bundle would be. We're, you know, we're more like the uh, ESPN classic than the ESPN, you know, in the in the cable bundle hierarchy. But you know, we've got a cool product and it's something that a lot of people do need every so often. Uh, you know, a lot of people do have a very good experience of it. And then they're just like, eh, I just can't get over that $30 hump right now. And we can't really lower that price that much because we're, we got it. You know, that person has to cover the other 200 people. So what I would definitely take, you know, is like some small share of this bundle just to be a part of it. And, you know, you can imagine complicating that in any number of ways. But even if I were just to say, okay, let's say that bundle is a hundred bucks. Let's say Waymark gets one one thousandth of that bundle. We get 10 cents per user that they sell. If they go sell a million users, then that is a hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue for Waymark, that's a million dollars a year. So every million they sell of those bundles is a million dollars to Waymark and, you know, and potentially hundreds of others of long tail, you know, kind of episodic, you know, yeah, it'd be cool to use this, but I don't really want to subscribe to it right now, sort of apps. Then we could serve, you know, an audience that we just never really could otherwise serve, you know, that million people when they need Waymark, they could have it. You know, and we would feel like we're not getting cheated. You know, we would we would also feel like we don't have to pressure every user to sign. Not that we're pressuring, but, you know, we're gating. We're like putting calls to action. You know, we're trying to do all the things that SaaS apps do to get people to subscribe. It feels like we could really, you know, be more like, hey, just have at it. Have fun. And then if, you, you know, if you're going to make more than five this month or whatever, then, then you can, you know, maybe subscribe to a higher tier plan. And I don't even think that would cannibalize much of our business. And from what I hear from other app developers, this problem is very widespread. And I think you've probably heard some of this in your you know, VC talk as well, right? All of the app developers that I talk to, at least, have a lot of people interested, you know, a lot of traffic as people just kind of explore new stuff all the time. Typically, they are doing pretty well in new customer signups, too, but the retention sucks. And so it's like, man, you get into this high churn environment and that's just not a great dynamic to be in. I don't know. I feel like I like it on both sides. There need, would obviously need to be some sort of market maker in the middle. Who would do that? You know, could it be OpenAI? Maybe. Could it be a more neutral kind of editorial type of body? You know, a wire cutter type of thing where we don't, you know, as Wirecutter, we don't make any of these, you know, products, but we just have an authoritative, credible voice uh, of what is in and, you know, what is good and what's not good. I could also see that. Uh, I don't think OpenAI is going to be like super keen in the short term to take on all this editorial, but I could imagine them creating a more sort of 
you know, rules-based system where you might imagine something that's like you get in based on an initial review and then you stay in based on like some amount of usage or, you know, or also like payments could be sort of what they really don't want to do presumably is do all the negotiation with a thousand different apps as everybody's like, yeah, whatever. But they could easily do like a take it or leave it sort of deal where it's like you're at this scale, you have this many users, you know, that puts you in this tier, you get this percent and that's that, right? And we have room for however many companies and, you know, maybe as the bundle subscriber base grows, I mean, we've got what, probably 50 million cable subscriptions still in the United States. So like a million cable bundles is small, you know, at a more mature state, if it became 10 million AI bundle subscribers, I don't necessarily think Waymark's share would even necessarily grow proportionally. Instead, it might be like, now we go from a thousand apps to 2000 apps and you guys all get more, but not as much more as the whole thing has grown because we're going to expand, you know, all the different things that we can include. Obviously, a lot more things are coming on all the time as well, which would make that a natural progression. I don't know. Why doesn't this work? You're the uh, you're the VC. What's what are the holes that you see in this theory? I totally get how it makes sense from the developer perspective, the user perspective. And my natural inclination is to sort of look at other industries and think about where things like it have have happened or where things like it haven't and we you know we sort of alluded to to to, to cable and sort of the the strength of uh, or the durability of of that bundle despite people's expectations otherwise and ben thompson writes a lot about how people underappreciate uh, the economics of of the bundle and and why it makes sense for so many people i i go to SaaS, right so companies um have a whole suite of SaaS products that they pay, you know, X amount a month. And wouldn't it be easier if they just paid uh, a bundle in terms of access to all of them? And maybe in some cases that, that exists, but I don't see that sort of like super widespread. I think it's just the the cost of coordination such that on the producer side, such that it would make sense for every individual company instead of you know, the individual companies trying to own the customer relationship directly and then use that as a wedge to expand into, you know, multi-product themselves. Uh, I wonder if that's what might hold that back here is just companies not wanting to be intermediated between them and the customer and then also thinking that they will not just occupy their their spot, but that they will occupy the other spots within that bundle and they'll become competitive. But you can still have a lot of competition within the bundle, right? I mean, when I think about my cable bundle, there certainly is plenty of competition within that. It seems to be, you know, pretty fierce. And you also, I think, I mean, this is very different technology, right? So in the case of cable, you, you know, historically, you basically just had no other choice to do it if you're a producer of, of content or very few other choices, you know, bordering on no other choices. And so... You know, you might have wished that you could go direct to the consumer, but you just really couldn't. Now with, you know, content being delivered over the internet, obviously lots of people are trying that in various ways. And, you know, we've got everything plus the, you know, the, the content uh, industry decided to add plus to everything and the AI industry is adding pro to everything. So they're doing that. It seems like it's kind of working for some of them, but you know, probably again, kind of a power law type of thing where it's obviously going to work for Disney because they have the gravity to command that type of, yeah, I'm, I'm going to buy it. And it is what it is. 
few have that, you know, I've not subscribed to Discovery Plus or, you know, whatever other pluses there might be. I see, you know, CNN Plus obviously was not uh, super well received. So in any event, though, in this case, you kind of would much more easily be able to own the customer relationship or at least have it not like totally, you maybe would have it like partially mediated by the bundle. You'd have to have some you know, log in with or connect with, you know, again, we have that in cable too, right? I go to ESPN.com. I want to watch something on the website. You connect with your, you know, cable provider or what have you. So some, some version of that is maybe still needed to, you know, just manage the logistics. But then once you're logged in, presumably the app would like know who you are, you know, be able to see what usage you're doing. You know, if you're Waymark, you're going to be, creating a business profile and, you know, we're going to have a pretty good sense of who you are if you're using the app at all, you know, kind of regardless of who owned the billing relationship. And I honestly think, you know, for us, like we want to own the billing relationship with our best customers, but we really don't necessarily want to own it with our worst customers, you know, and it's not to say that those customers are bad people, but just that they're, you know, not long-term subscribers to a whatever, you know, $30 a month video creator especially when we don't lock them into anything. So you just see this be you know, so often. This is like, yep, create, download, and cancel. <laughs> it's like, it wasn't really, you know, that wasn't, a, that wasn't something where like people were disappointed with the service. That was their plan the entire time. You know, they're not, they're not coming back later and saying, I don't like this anymore. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I still feel like I'm, I'm still bullish on the bundle. Say more about the, the SaaS. Why isn't this more prevalent um, at, at a company level? for sort of SaaS products or SaaS tools, either via some sort of wire cutter thing or just the companies coordinating, you know, one company coordinating. Maybe churn isn't so high in general. You know, I think maybe SaaS historically has more of a stickiness to it. I mean, you know, the magic of AI from a user standpoint kind of cuts the other way from a retention standpoint. I can use Waymark with no learning curve no time spent and I'm not really forming like a sense of, Hey, I've invested in this or, you know, I've learned how to use it. I don't want to go have to learn another thing. We've taken the learning part totally out of it. So that could be one reason, you know, if, if people are happy with their retention and they're like, yeah, I don't have, you know, if you, if you simply don't have a lot of people trying your product that you like, you know, would be happy to kind of take 10 cents a month from, uh, you know, because they're maybe only going to show up one every, you know, 24 months anyway, then maybe it's just not appealing to you. And so much SaaS is kind of that way where you're like, you know, you're onboarded and you're, you know, trained and all this kind of stuff. That's the first thing that comes to mind for sure. Just the ease of flipping into and out of all these products like I can get value super quick but I also know that I can go get value anywhere else you know super quick too so I just can't uh, I'm just not forming and I don't have, you know don't have time to form attachment to these products in the way that maybe a couple of years ago you know I really had to sit down and learn to use it and therefore maybe I'd stick around a little longer yeah I mean to go back to the cable thing for a second it's like from a user perspective at least it's like hey I really just want to watch ESPN or whatever this channel. I don't, I don't need this entire sort of collection of things. And it's probably, it might be cheaper 
for me to just just get the get the one that that's when people want it to be unbundled they want it to be bundled when they think it would be cheaper to get the aggregate they any they either want the aggregate or they might want the the aggregate and there's some like variability uh, in there and so i understand here why people would want what users and develop would want the aggregate or the, the the collection, the bundle, and the question is: Is it in the company's incentives to be a part of this bundle? And more so than that, whose incentive is it to form the bundle? And this is sort of the to form, maintain, you know, keep uh, upkeep, be accountable for. In theory, whoever does would own a customer relationship, so that seems it'd be very strategic for someone to do so. But would they? let other companies be in the bundle and also let them own the customer relationship um, as opposed to try to just build competitors. Yeah, like you said, you know, maybe maybe it's OpenAI or, or, or a new company like Wirecutter, but I, I don't know how many companies would be incentivized to do such a thing where they include their competitors in, in, in a bundle. Yeah, one, so I don't know how uh, realistic this is either, but I was kind of thinking, you know, there's these really interesting moves that the leading AI companies are making where, you know, they're competing with each other, but it's honestly not very hard competition right now relative to what it probably could be. There are nascent collaborations, you know, with things like the Frontier Model Forum, there are just generally people like saying nice things about each other, you know, up until pretty recently. And even still, to some degree, there's like a lot of knowledge sharing in the form of just publishing research. And maybe above all, there's this most, most tangibly and, and maybe most relevantly, there's this part of the OpenAI charter where they say that if another credible organization is like getting close to AGI, then they will work with that organization as opposed to racing that organization because they're really afraid of these race dynamics. So we're in like a much more mundane moment right now uh, for how long, who knows, but certainly at the moment, you know, like neither Claude 2 nor GPT-4 are sufficiently close to AGI as to have triggered that clause. But I do wonder if there's, you know, given all the movement that they are making to like try to kind of set up these collaboration forums and try to, you know, agree on some regulation framework seemingly as well. I do wonder if like a commercial agreement like this could be appealing in a way that it wouldn't be if it's just two content, you know, owners duking it out. Right. Because here they do seem to have a real, kind of principled worldview that's like the last thing we want to do is get into a cutthroat race, you know, against each other to the point where we're both, you know, or multiple parties are incentivized to cut corners on safety, right? They're, they've certainly paid a ton of lip service to that. I tend to think it's pretty sincere. So if that is the case, you could almost imagine the frontier model forum. I think this would end up being a separate thing because this would be like, you know, people are already cynical enough. I don't think they'd, there'd be an infinite amount of cynicism in response to the literal Frontier Model Forum doing it. But something like the Frontier Model Forum, you know, the same companies could say, hey, we've all got kind of some strengths and weaknesses. You know, the pie is growing extremely quickly. 
let's not compete for every subscriber because we know that probably people are not going to want to subscribe to everything unless we can make it just really compelling and easy for them to subscribe to everything. And then, you know, if we could kind of agree on some rules-based way to divide up that revenue, then that could be just good for everyone, right? It takes pressure off of us. We don't have to worry that they've got a, you know, slight edge or they're, you know, they're releasing their thing before we did. I mean, the moment earlier this year where Microsoft is, you know, racing to get their Bing thing out and then Google's trying to get ahead of them and they get ahead of them by like one day and have some terrible announcement. You know, that is a pattern we really don't want to get into in the GPT-5 plus era. So anything you could do to kind of say, hey, you launch this week, we'll launch next week, we'll launch next month, whatever, it'll all be fine. Because, you know, it just, all these launches make the bundle more compelling, more people sign up, we all get revenue, you know, maybe we kind of compete on the margins for users, but not necessarily for like that more discreet payment decision moment. I could see that being pretty cool. And, you know, there's a long list. Let me just give you, a, I give you like the anchor tenants in my bundle, but here's just more, you know, things that I would like to have in a bundle that I either have paid for and canceled or like, you know, was at least tempted to, or maybe I'm still paying for it without realizing it. So Dolly, I get that with OpenAI. Midjourney is its own subscription. Playground AI is has a super generous free tier, as we may recall from our very first episode, but obviously also has an upsell. Lexica, same deal. Stable diffusion from stability, you know, has its own kind of pricing for its usage. That's just five image <laughs> creators. There's a ton of niche ones too. Like I follow this um, uh, this guy, Levels.io, who is like a prolific individual kind of solopreneur who's put out multiple pretty cool AI apps. And, you know, he's also at this kind of price point and he does well for himself, probably could do maybe even better in a bundle. I mean, I don't know. He's been among the most successful, but I think it could even make sense for somebody like him. But he does these very niche ones, like put yourself in this. He was doing that before other people were. So, you know, you could have a bunch more just in the image category. Agents type stuff is coming up all over the place. We've had three different agent companies on the show. Text to speech is another one where I've got live accounts with WellSaid Labs, PlayHT, former guest, and Eleven Labs. That's just in voice. You know, then you got all these creative tools, Waymark, Gamma, Tome, Jasper, et cetera, et cetera. Every single one of those is like has a $20 plus per month tier. And they're all like super useful, but they all have this kind of dual problem of like the friction of paying. And then also the fact that I just don't do it that often. You know, Gamma, it's, a, it's an awesome way to create a great visual presentation. I don't create that many. I created one for the AI scouting report. I've created another one for like an AI uh, task automation primer. Not that many. Khan Academy too, you know, tutoring. I signed up for that thing. I since canceled it. I don't, I'm not looking for algebra, you know, tutoring on a daily basis. So, you know, at some point you just got to like keep the credit card clean. I feel like easily there are, you know, $500 worth of apps that I would be like, yeah, if I subscribe to everything that I occasionally use, it comes out to a ton, 80, 90% of those are probably not worth it. And kind of in the same way as the cable bundle, I sort of imagine subscribing to this thing where I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever that price is, 
well, if I just went and bought ChatGPT Pro by itself and also Copilot by itself and also Perplexity Pro by itself, I'm basically there. So I may as well just buy the bundle and like get a hundred other things too. It does feel super compelling. You want to be an equity investor in my new uh, <laughs> AI bundling, AIbundle.co? I, I think it's going to be hard to to coordinate. I mean, think of something like ride sharing, like Lyft and Uber. Those companies should have merged, right? Like those companies were offering the same product, basically, and they were fueled by venture dollars to inefficiently offer the same product. Basically, they were both running each other out of business, more or less. And venture subsidized rides. So they diluted, I don't know, did they both dilute like 80%, 90%? I have no idea. But they both diluted a, a crazy amount because they took so much money. And if they were one company, they could have avoided this whole mess. <laughs> um, and I spoke to Emil Michael, uh, the chief business officer at Uber. And he was like, yeah, I tried to get us to acquire them, to merge, because they just didn't make sense. But Travis said, we got to kill them. And Lyft was like, we hate Uber. So businesses just are irrational at the end of the day. And, and the fact that they're funded by, by VCs who, and they all have take over the world visions, it's challenging for people to be in a spot of like, hey, you, you play this niche, or hey, you collaborate with this competitor. When everyone's trying to dominate market share, it's hard to get them to agree to a bundle long term when they, they would just going to want increasing pies of this bundle. Now, you do see some major players collaborate, but there are, are a lot of times where they don't, even though it would be much better, not only to the user, the customer, but also to themselves. It, it would cement, cement themselves. I, I see the example of levels, et cetera. There, there are obvious examples where it makes sense. Yeah, even in, in situations where it makes sense for all parties, sometimes pride or, or just the narrative that they told or believed themselves prevents them from, from doing it. So I'm color me a bit dubious, though I would like it to happen. And I think, I think it's a creative idea. Yeah, you can almost see in the Lyft and Uber example, and also if you visit the Sling TV pricing page, you can see kind of an alternative vision of this, which I think is maybe more likely for the reasons that you're describing. What they have on the Sling TV pricing page is the orange pack and the blue pack. And basically, they're kind of, you know, just two different content alliances that, you know, have kind of clustered around some core pieces. So you could kind of imagine a version of that that could be like the OpenAI bundle and the Anthropic bundle, you know, or maybe the OpenAI Microsoft bundle, you know, as kind of one axis, and then the Anthropic Google bundle on the other axis. And then, you know, each one could kind of have a bunch of, you know, smaller players that are kind of in their ecosystem. You can imagine like, to be in our ecosystem, you have to use our models. That sounds a lot less awesome to me for most people involved. But I could see how Certainly the folks at the leading companies right now do feel like they're kind of, if not taken over the world, you know, certainly in a very privileged position where they're going to get to call a lot of shots. And yeah, if they don't want to cooperate, you know, certainly it's going to be very hard to make them. The other thing I think could be also pretty interesting about this is I think you could get a lot of people to buy the bundle, particularly if a lot of the app developers, and maybe this would end up being like something you have to do or, you know, but again, you don't want to end up negotiating too much or it's just going to be way too much friction. But I could also see something where it's like, hey, you know what? At Waymark, we don't give away the AI experience anymore. You got to subscribe to the bundle. And if you did that, and all of a sudden all these like apps that are currently kind of out there for free-ish, you know, for a little or whatever, then maybe 
each one, you know, kind of serves as like a point where it's like, yeah, another reason to get the bundle. That would be a very different dynamic from, say, a cable where, you know, I don't get to see what's on, you know, Discovery Channel uh, haphazardly and then decide to buy it, I guess, maybe out of home or whatever. But like, you know, I don't have that kind of quick taste of this one random thing that I want that then like leads me into the bundle from like a thousand different directions in a more kind of distributed high surface area, more touch points way might have, you know, more, more ways in to the bundle as well. You know, I'll, I'll maybe remain hopeful. I think it's funny. This is kind of the classic, like the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, you know, or your co companies, you know, don't necessarily always act rationally, certainly undeniable fact. But if that's the biggest reason it won't happen, then at least it feels like there's maybe some chance that it could. That's a good note to, to wrap. Cool. Well, let's see if we can go uh, talk anybody into it. Nathan, always a pleasure. Until next time. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice. 